Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but uh, the scripture reading this morning was being read by a single man. (laughs) And uh, I was surprised. I thought that he would plead for all of you to pray on his behalf, (laughs) as all single men do. (laughs) If you missed that, his mom said, as the moms do as well. (laughs) <laughs> let's, uh, let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your abounding grace in our life and for your goodness to us in so many ways. Father, we have gathered here today, Lord, because of who you are, because we love you, because, Father, we want to show our reverence, we want to adore you, we want to sing together praises to your name, we want to hear your word read. Father, we also desire to hear your word explained. That, Father, we may be encouraged, that we may grow. That, Father, we may be used by you as you see fit in the world in which we live in. And that, Father, we may have great joy. So, Father, we ask, as we always do, that you would bless our time in your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us. Help us, Father, to think, to think biblically, to reason from the word of God. We pray that it would guide and direct all things that we think. And Father, our understanding may become much more complete as once again we are called to live life as you've called us to live it in a way that pleases you. And so, Father, we are grateful for your word that you preserve for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For we know... That if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Last week as we began the series wanting to come to a good understanding of what is it that takes place the moment that we die. And, of course, the follow-up to that, which I think is very important, is and how do we know that to be true? Because it's important for us to know how these things are true. So we began with a little scenario that all of us have been involved at one stage or another where we attend a funeral. Perhaps you are with your child or you hear another child or you hear the conversation where the child will ask the question, where is grandma now? And the sad thing is, is that for a growing number of Christians, when it comes to answering that question, when it comes to life after death, to them it means that we exist in the memory of our families, maybe even in the memory of God. That when a Christian dies, he is in some kind of an unconscious state, maybe awaiting the resurrection, if they believe in the resurrection. 
But the traditional view is that the believer has a conscious existence and is living in heaven in an intermediate state. And we use the word intermediate because the resurrection that we're looking forward to hasn't happened yet. So they are in an intermediate state between death and the resurrection. And so we want, once again, to explore how do we know that is the case. Now, because of the nature of what we're going through, I am going to be unable to do a review uh, to kind of catch us up from week to week. So you need to listen to the other one uh, if you find yourself maybe a little disconnected uh, with some things. So you can go online or get the CD. It's all free, so we're not trying to sell anything. Um, But we just kind of have to move on as we work our way through this. And the reason why is because there's a great deal of material to cover. And the reason for that is because there are lots of things that influence our thinking. There are lots of things that come along that begin to, that have affected Christians in the way they understand life and death and these issues. And they're not necessarily always biblical. There's the influence from the world, whether it's from the world of academia, whether it's from, you know, media of some kind, or just popular opinion, which is informed by academia and the media and all those types of things. And so as we look at this, what we're going to begin to do is, is continue to look at the defining of terms. And the next one is, is dualism. Now that's important because that really is, I believe, a biblical understanding of man, dualism. Christian dualism is the belief that human beings possess both a body and a soul, or a body and a spirit. We can use soul or spirit interchangeably. Uh, it doesn't really much matter. But basically that is when the body dies, the soul continues to exist in a conscious state until the resurrection and the reception of a resurrection body. Now, dualism is both a philosophical and a theological term, and it has all kinds of varieties, and we're not going to look at all those varieties, but I do want to look at it philosophically just for a few moments, because again, it does and can affect our thinking. Philosophically, dualism was first developed in Greek philosophy. Plato was the guy that first came up with that, I guess you could say. Descartes is another one who's much more influential when it comes to our understanding of dualism. Dualism, again, begins by taking very seriously the fact that human beings have both physical properties and mental properties. All right? So as, they, you know, as Plato's looking at human beings and thinking about people and what we're like and what we do and those types of things, uh, he began to come to this understanding that you know, we have these different capabilities, and so they kind of divide them into two, the physical and the mental. And, of course, for the believer, we, we kind of think the mental and the soul, all that kind of combines together. We're not sure as to how all that works out exactly, and we can't always define the exact parameters, but that's kind of where we're at when it comes to those things. And that was opposed to this idea that man, again, is just one thing. That body and soul is just one thing. So when your body ceases to exist, you cease to exist, which they would lead you then to believe that this is all there is. The here and now is all there is. When you die, you die, and that's it. And there's, there's nothing else. Uh, dualism, I believe, gives a clear and straightforward explanation of the existence of these two types of properties. Again, mental and physical. Uh, Again, the physical properties are the properties of the body. The mental are the properties of the mind. Uh, And again, sometimes when you read about someone who believes in dualism or says they're a dualist, uh, they may not use the word mind. They may use the word soul, but it's the same thing. There's a Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantinga 
who writes books that are at times very difficult to understand. However, uh, he uh, said this. He said, I know it is all the rage today to be a materialist, that human beings are their material bodies, their brains, or something inside of their brains. But I don't believe that for a minute. I don't believe that is right. If I were a material object, I would have to be my body or my brain or some part of it. But it seems to me to be perfectly conceivable that I can exist when my body doesn't. I am saying that it is in fact possible to exist when my body does not. The distinction between my body and me exists because I can actually conceive of me not being the same as my body. Then that very fact supports me not being the same as my body. So planning as premises basically is that if a person can conceive of an existence outside of our body or beyond the body, then that is enough proof philosophically that people are more than just their bodies. You can take it or leave it, but people who are into philosophy, that's kind of a big deal. All right? uh, but th- there's been this decline, and that's why we have to, I believe, deal with this issue. There's been a decline in believing that or understanding life that way for both believers and non-believers. They're moving away from that, and so therefore that we, we find ourselves, or you find other believers, moving away from this idea that when someone dies, they're still alive somewhere else. It seems to be a fairy tale or a myth, just some kind of a fanciful idea. And as a result of that, it affects the way we live our lives. It affects our approach to religion. It affects our approach for the Christian, uh, their approach to prayer, their approach to Christ, their approach to the Bible. A man by the name of John Hicks says this, He gives two reasons for this decline in the belief in both a body and a soul distinction. He says this considerable decline within society as a whole is accompanied by a lesser decline within the churches of the belief in the personal immortality. And and so he says these two um, things or two reasons are this. Number one, the assumption within our culture that we should only believe in what we experience. And that affects believers as well. Some, anyway, if we're not grounded in the Word of God. This idea that if you haven't experienced it, then it's not real. That, so, therefore, we can reduce religious experience to being nothing more than a very personal, individual thing. So, we don't have to talk about if it's true or false. So, if Robert says he has some kind of a spiritual experience, I can say, I absolutely believe you. And I absolutely believe that you have experienced that, and that is absolutely true for you. But it's not true. Not in the general sense, because I haven't experienced it. There's no way that I can verify that what you've experienced is true, because we all know that the only things that are true are things that we've experienced. Now, that's not true, but that's where many people are. And so they feel very comfortable then, uh, maybe even encouraging you as a Christian to believe what you want and feel nothing uh, and don't even want to hear about you talking to them about the truth of Christ. They want to go there. And there's reasons for that. It's, it's because we like our sin and we're in rebellion to God. But nonetheless, this is kind of a growing trend in our society. What kind of goes along with that? And the second thing is that um, we tend to believe only what is accredited scientifically. In other words, if science can certify it, then we believe it. If science can't certify it, then we, we have our doubts. We kind of raise, now I'm not against science, science is a great thing, but we kind of want to raise science to, to a level that it is infallible, but also that if science doesn't discuss it or can't prove it, therefore it doesn't exist, and that's not true either. So this comes back then, at least for the believer, 
It does enter the, into the debate once again as to your view of the Bible. Our society, there's a tactic that they use. I don't, I don't think they all use it purposely, but they kind of join in uh, rather eagerly. And the tactic is to basically mock the individual who says they believe the whole Bible. They, they, want to, they, they want you to get the idea that they and others think that you are at best intellectually on the level of an adolescent. That, well, I can't believe you believe in that book. I mean, it's almost like saying you believe in fairy tales. Yes, I believe in Santa Claus. I believe in the Easter Bunny and God. And that's what they, they, that's what they hear you saying. They don't want to be in that arena because they're convinced that that all is the same thing. And so sometimes what happens is, is that's a very effective tactic. And you find Christians backing down. So, you know, no longer saying that, yes, I believe everything that's in the Bible, that I believe the Bible is historically and accurately true, even though we have more information available than any other time, and we have more evidence that this book that we have is credible in every way, and that it truly is without error. It is a supernatural book. People will proclaim that sitting in church. They may, they may proclaim that sitting at home, but they walk outside, and that goes out the window. It's almost as if there's an embarrassment to stand on the Word of God. Almost an embarrassment to admit that we read the Bible, study the Bible, much less believe the Bible. And so the Bible then begins to lose its authority and its effect on us. It is no longer a real guide to us. It doesn't doesn't direct our thinking. We just see it as a book that suggests ways that we could think. That it makes suggestions as to maybe what we should consider morally. And so we consider that with what we are thinking, but in the end, we're going to decide what we think is right, and that's the direction that we're going to go. The idea of being submissive to the Word of God, that it is authoritative, that it is an authority over my life, is we've dismissed that. And so we need to get back to that. And it begins primarily always with mom and dad. Mom and dad need to emulate that to their kids. We don't just tell our kids that. They have to see that. And they, and they see that maybe primarily in the midst of our disagreements and our conflicts. In other words, when there's conflict at home, do they see us in obedience to the scripture, seeking forgiveness, <laughs> reconciling, or forgiving others? Do they see us when there's conflict or tension with other people, Are we at home talking bad about those individuals and saying how so-and-so is just a stupid idiot because they don't agree with me or whatever it happens to be? Is that what they hear? They don't hear us saying that we still disagree with them. We can even still say, I think that they're wrong, but there's still a a sense of, of respect for the individual and the types of things that the Bible tells us that we are to have. They need to see that. Uh, being lived out in our lives. And so if the word of God doesn't have any authority in our life as an individual, then we're not going to be able to pass that on because it's not just something we teach. It's something that we must live out. So what happens is they would then begin, our kids and others would begin to fall back on what society says because society not only says certain things, they live it out. And what they see is society depending upon primarily science and popular opinion. They believe that what science cannot observe and cannot substantiate does not exist. So therefore, since neuroscience cannot observe and measure a soul, its existence is denied. 
They may still use the word soul, but they use it like they use the word mind, and they mean nothing more than that. Because again, a belief is true only if it can be tested scientifically, observed, measured, quantified, and so forth. But you know, the soul doesn't exactly fit into that kind of a category. And so the so-called ideal sciences, physics and chemistry, uh, they can't quantify or measure it. Now, throughout history, in the Christian tradition, whether it's Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, the historic Protestant churches, they've all affirmed that God created humans as unities of body and soul, but that disembodied souls exist in an intermediate state. Now, they, didn't, they weren't clear all the time as to what they meant by that. They just meant that, well... We know there's a resurrection. We know that you eat your body. We know that you have a body now. We know that when you die, you go somewhere. You are conscious and awake. We're not sure as to the details of all of that, but they didn't believe that you went to sleep or that you ceased to exist. And they got that not only from their observations and philosophy, they got that because that's what the Bible says. And we're going to look at that in a few moments. And we'll be looking at uh, just one passage in particular today. Uh, but hopefully as we look at it, you'll understand that there are Lots of things that need to go on when we read the Bible and we use the Bible to guide and direct the way that we think. So again, in other words, what the churches believe is that the body and the soul, again, are distinct and they are normally integrated. But the soul can exist separately and that it's sustained by God. They are unified in creation, redemption, eternal life. Separation is temporary, a temporary consequence of sin and death. And so some people would call this a whole, a, a, a dualist holism or dualistic holism or something like that and there's different views of that and we're not going to if you really want to get into that i can give you some books but you know uh if you uh, that's just there's no need to get into all those things but let me read to you both the westminster confession of faith of 1646 and the london baptist confession of 1689 uh which those are great confessions just to read those things are fantastic um but they hold the traditional view of what we would call Protestant orthodoxy. In other words, what, has the, what, what have the Protestants always believed? Remember, Protestants are all the denominations that are Christian but not Catholic. Uh, it comes from the word protest. You know, protesting what the Catholic Church was teaching doctrinally because they were moving away from what the Scripture says on some very important things, which is still true to this day. Uh, but there is this traditional dualistic anthropology, or a, a view of man, that man is both body and soul. So the confession reads this way. Uh, and the confessions were made of men who were, who were scholars, who were experts in Greek and Hebrew and theology. Uh, they were very, very smart, spent years developing these things and helping people to understand what the scripture says. And it says this, The bodies of men, after death, return to dust, and they see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but will be changed, and the dead believers shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other, although they will have different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. So that's one of the reasons why Christians have always traditionally buried the dead. It's because we believe that the body is sacred. Now, when we say that, it doesn't mean that we worship the body. But the idea is that um, the body is sacred and that 
this resurrection, when, when I, if I die, like if I die tomorrow and my, the resurrection doesn't happen for another 300 years, there's not going to be much left. But when I'm reunited with my body, it's going to be my body. I don't know how much like myself I'm going to look. There's going to be some differences. Probably better looking and I won't have a limp. But the thing is, is that the, the body is important. Now, many pagan religions cremate. And they cremate for different reasons. Some of the main reasons there's a belief in reincarnation. And so because of that, you, just, you, know, you burn the body up and because that person is living another body. We don't believe that. And so many times Christians do not bury so that there is no confusion between what pagan religions believe and what Christians believe. Now, today, which we live in, there are many individuals who do cremate, but they don't do it for religious reasons. They do it for um, uh, financial reasons because they cannot afford it. And so that's why people today, they, they wonder, well, is it a sin for us to cremate? Well, I don't, I don't think we can say it's a sin. I think it's preferred to bury the body, but I don't think we can say that it's a sin. Uh, but I would say this, if you are a Christian and you're living in India, you should bury the body because it, India is a Hindu country. If you cremate the body, they're all going to think one thing, that you don't believe in a resurrection and you believe in reincarnation. So we have to take all where we live and the culture we live, all those things have to be considered when it comes to those issues. We want to make sure that we understand, though, that, we, that when we are raising it for the dead, it's your body. Uh, and uh, if someone is burned and dies in a fire, that's, God can handle that. You don't have to worry about that. Because some people say, well, you know, what happens if, you know, if, you know, God made man out of dust to begin with. So it's not like it's a hard thing for God. But we've always had an, uh, an emphasis on the body, that the body was important. Because, again, it's also made, we are made in the image of God, which includes physically. We're not saying that God looks like us, but there's a combination of things there that's very important. We see human life as being important, as being special. Uh, and that's not because we think man uh, is somehow uh, the, the pinnacle of evolution it is the, he is the pinnacle of creation, uh, and therefore we have uh, aspects of our life that are very important and very different. Turn to Matthew 10, if you would. I'm going to begin reading in verse 28, and this is the verse or the passage I want us to look at, him, at, to look at this morning. Jesus is speaking, and so beginning in verse 28 of Matthew 10, it reads, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now, there's a lot of truths in this passage that, that people have talked about, that people have taught on. Uh, but remember that when you read through the scripture, that every word, every phrase, every sentence carries meaning. Now, it is not that we're looking for a hidden meaning. We're not looking for necessarily, well, he says this. What he really means is this back here. We're not doing that. What we want to make sure we do is observe everything that's being said. And when you observe everything that's being said, this goes beyond just the fact that you're valuable to God. That is in there, but it's more than that. This is more than just the idea that if you confess God before uh, men, then he, will, then he will confess you before our Father in heaven. That's important, but there's more than just that. When we read the scripture, you want to drink all of it in. So Jesus, again, is reminding the apostles 
and the, that the religious leaders were accusing him of working by the power of the devil. That's, what, that's the context of what's going on. Uh, he cast a demon out, and they said he was able to do it by the power of Beelzebub. So Jesus' point was that if the religious leaders falsely accused him, then they certainly would do the same to the disciples. But the apostles had no need to fear the religious leaders. Jesus wanted to encourage them by pointing out that their enemies could destroy the physical body, but not their souls. So when Jesus makes this statement, do not fear those who kill the body, uh, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who could destroy both soul and body, there's a presupposition there. He's not explaining it. He's just making a statement based on something that he is presupposing to be true. And of course, if Jesus is presupposing something to be true, then it's true. So he's not just, you know, making a nice statement to make them feel good. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry, you'll be delivered from physical persecution, because he doesn't say that. What he emphasizes now, the distinction and the differences between the body and the soul. That both can be destroyed, and this one group only has the ability to destroy only one. And the one that they should truly be afraid of is the one who could destroy both. So you don't want to miss, when you read through the scripture, you don't want to miss out on all of the details that are there because this is what he is saying. So again, Jesus wants to encourage them. So in verses 29 and through 32, following verse 28, he confirms the value that the Father placed on them. Yes, the Father values them greatly. So God is not looking away. God is not forgetting them. When they go through times of great difficulty, when they go through times of persecution, uh, what has happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. That does not mean God has abandoned them. It doesn't mean that God thinks they're of any less value because none of that is true. They state, the verses state, that Jesus would acknowledge them before the Father, even though they might be physically killed for their faith in him. So if the mission is the will and the work of God through the disciples, they need not fear. The worst that human persecution can bring in any event is the death of the body. But a human being made in the image of God is more than a body, being a combination of both body and soul. So again, so talk of killing the body already implies that there is more to a person than the body. Physical death thus pales in comparison with the prospect of eternal punishment. That that is one of the places where we get this idea that dualism is true. Dualism, two things. I'm a body and a soul. I'm a, uh, now people have said it different ways. The best way is that I am a soul that has a body. It's not that you have a body that has a soul. It's the other way around. It's the better way. But nonetheless, the body and soul points to a, a fundamental dualism in human beings. In this life, of course, body and soul are closely united. Uh, God will eventually reunite them in the resurrection. But the scripture consistently teaches that the two are separated at death. So there is this separation. Luke 23, 43. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus is on the cross. He's speaking to one of the men who's being crucified with him. And they both are going to die. And Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So again, there's some assumptions being made there. They both are going to be aware of where they are. That they are going to be together. This is going to be a good thing. So again, this is not just Jesus speaking, in a sense, metaphorically. This is not just Jesus trying to give a nice myth to comfort this man in his death. 
he is giving him the truth. Which again is, is one of those things I bring up from time to time more often now when I do a funeral. And that's because, and part of it is because we live in the South. In the South, we all say a lot of nice religious things, especially at funerals. And we say things like, you know, well, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. So and so is in a better place. And sometimes I wonder how many people who say that really believe that's true. Do you believe that that person really is? in another place, that they are alive, that they are conscious, that they are aware of where they are? Or are you just saying that because that's what people say at a funeral? That's what people say when, when a loved one passes. So if you don't believe that, I think it may be best for you to say something else. Not that you have to be cruel or mean, but a lot of people do this. We will just say things because it's just the thing to say. In fact, it's almost a good thing. You don't believe it, but you don't have to believe what you say anymore. This gets really weird. We live in a really strange time, to say the least. But, but we need to ask ourselves, and of course I do think, the older we get, even though we probably should think about this all the time, but the older we get, the more real death is because we know it's coming. Now, maybe I'm a little weird. That would not be unusual. You know, but when I hear about someone passing away, I've, I always listen for the age. I don't know why. But so someone who's 70 and they pass away, I think, well, if that would be me, I only got 11 years. Now, I don't freak out about it, but it's kind of a, of course, it gets really unnerving when the person's 65. I've got... Five and a half years. You know, I, I don't know when I'm going to die. And it, it could be this year. I'm not planning on that. But hopefully it'll be like my dad. My dad's 80, still kicking, going strong. That's awesome. So I've got, I've got some time. But anyway, well, not too much, but you know. <laughs> but the thing is, is that we do need to think about it. It's a reality. It's just like a heavy shadow. Uh, people don't like to talk about it. I'm not saying it needs to be the topic of discussion every day because it doesn't need to be. But we do need to live in light of the truth that there is a thing called death. But that death is not the end of existence. This is not all there is. And we can know what other life is. We, we can know what it's like on the other side, however you want to phrase it. We can know what it is. We, we go to the scriptures and what it says. We can believe what it says. And so this whole idea, and, and I have overheard this, because no one, no one said this to me, but I've overheard people talking in, you, know, you go to a church, and you, if you're attending the funeral of someone else, because a lot of times I'm doing it, but when I, when I hear other people talking, I have sometimes heard these kinds of conversations where people are saying stuff like, well, we just really can't know for sure. There's this sarcasm that I'm always suppressing inside of me. Uh, that I want to come out and say things. And when I, when I heard that, I wanted to say, well, it's clear you're not a Christian, but I didn't do that. Uh, but, the, but the point is, is that how can they, if a person says that and, and they really believe that, how do you call yourself a Christian? It's difficult to, to say that. We can't really know for sure. So are we taking a gamble here with the Lord? Am I gambling this is the best of everything that's out there? I don't know about you, but that's just not good enough because death seems to be fairly final. 
And what goes on after that needs to be determined pretty much now. And so we need to know. And, and sometimes this happens with believers. And sometimes we, get, we can get ourselves in a very difficult situation. You have a friend that you love dearly. And your friend's not a Christian. But your friend is a good person. Relatively speaking, they're, they're a good person. And they die. And we say, someone says, well, you know, let's say someone is seriously asking you. Maybe it's another friend who's not a Christian. And they ask you in all seriousness. So what do you think happened to Joe? And you say, he was a good man. Why would you say that? He was not a good man. He was a good man, relatively speaking. This person is asking you in all seriousness. I'm not saying that you get up and you proclaim it. Everyone's not ready to hear that. But when that individual brings that up, and maybe there's too many people around, you could say, you know, I really want to talk to you about that. We need to get together for coffee, dinner, whatever. But don't let that go by. But I have heard many, many individuals who at least we know this, they're churched, who say, yeah, but they were a good person. You're almost at the point of saying, I don't care what the Bible says, they were good. That's kind of where you're going. That's kind of what you're implying. We can't go there. If you're a believer, we we should not be saying, I don't care what the Bible says. Now, you, you may not know what the Bible says, and you need to find out, but we need to know that we can trust what this says and what this verse is stating and also implying is true. And... You know how they used to say, you can take that to the bank, but now the banks are unstable, so we have to find another phrase. All right? But the point is, is that this is true, and, we, and, and my faith and your faith is based on what the Word of God says. Remember that our faith is not blind. Our faith, there is substance to our faith. There are reasons why we believe. So we don't have blind faith. The world may think it's blind. They can think whatever they want. There is nothing unreasonable about what we believe. The world does want us to think that what we believe is unreasonable. Paul said these words in Philippians chapter 1, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul states that he is in quite a dilemma. He really wants to leave this planet. He wants to be with the Lord right now. He is convinced that if he dies at that moment, he is with the Lord and he is ready to go. But he wants God's will and for him, he's willing to put up with living here longer because there's people who need him. Not because he's great, but because the ministry that God has given him, he's willing to stay. But he's, he's raring to go. There's been only a few occasions that I've had to do this where I've had to go and actually comfort a believer because they were not dead. Where they they fully expected to wake up and see the Lord and when they opened their eyes and they were still here, they were extremely disappointed. I mean, very much so. And I talked to a man once, I mean, this this is the only time I've ever experienced this, where I've heard uh, something that's called the death rattle. I've heard that. Before, and I heard that in this man. I mean, I heard it. And so I, and I was going to do his funeral, and I was expecting a call within 48 hours that he had gone. 
I'd stayed that one night, about 10, 1030, went home. And I received a call on a Saturday morning. And, and not only was he not dead, he was, he was at the table eating breakfast. Uh, and he was depressed. And so I went over to the house, and, and we, we talked for a couple of hours. And he was perplexed. He, he had said his goodbyes. He was ready to go. All of his family had been able to come in and, and talk with him. And he just could not believe that he was not only not dead, but that he was feeling better. It was, and it was astounding. And so as we spoke and we talked, I assured him that him being ready and knowing he was ready was a, was a great thing. I said, but I know this. Perhaps there may be someone you know or someone in your family that's not ready for you to go yet. God's keeping you alive for a reason. God's not just doing this because it's just a fun thing to do. There's something that you need to accomplish. I don't know what it is. All right, but, and so, we, and so after a while, he was comforted and he was okay. And, and off I went. And he lived another five or six years. Um, and I won't tell you what he did, because if you, you know who he is, I'll tell you the rest of that story later. But it was really cool stuff that, that this guy accomplished. But the point is, is that Paul is in that same kind of position. How great is it? How great is it to be in a situation where you know for a matter of fact that you're going to be somewhere else? And when you die, that you are not, you're not going to be in limbo. There's no fear. You know where you're going to be. And that's, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Again, the last part of these verses back in Matthew, where we talk about both body and soul. Again, not only soul, but also the body. Again, there's these distinctions. Jesus meant that the material body is the complete person, so it really is you, all right? And, and, and so he's not, trying to, you know, he's not trying to say something different, different, but again, there's a separation. He separated the material from the non-material. He referred to the two as distinct parts uh, of a complete person. Jesus says that God can destroy both body and soul in hell. Again, the expression refers to the whole person. And the whole person is a body and soul. But again, those are two distinct things. Jesus is speaking again of the destruction of all that makes for a rich and meaningful life, not just a cessation of life's existence. Dualism then recognizes both non-material and material aspects of a human being. Dualism is what is assumed and communicated in the scripture. That man is these two things. If you don't believe this, then you have to believe that man is only one thing. And that he is not body and soul, but that the physical and the mental, or the physical and the soul, cannot be divided. Then you also believe that at death the person, the whole person, is dead. And they cease to exist. And that person, the one you know, will never exist as the same person again. What Christians believe. When I die, and both my, both my parents are alive, I'm very fortunate. So when one of my parents dies, when I die, I'm going to see them in heaven. Now, the relationship's going to be different because he will, let's say it's my dad. He will no longer be my dad because even right now he is my brother in the Lord. So when I get to heaven, I will see my father. He is my brother. We will actually be closer than we are now. If Cindy dies before me, when I see her in heaven, I will see Cindy. She will no longer be my wife. She's my sister in the Lord, but will actually be closer than we are now. So our relationships will be even more intimate, but with a large number of people, pretty much like everybody. 
It'll be, it's incredible. But that person who you know, you will recognize them in heaven. And all that is based on what the Word of God teaches. So the main thing when you leave here today is to remember that dualism is the way we understand human life. It's what the Bible assumes and communicates. That, you're, that you are a body and you are a soul. And the two are united together and are, cannot be separated until death. At death, for the believer, you go to be with the Lord. You exist. Just like Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So we're going to look at more passages of Scripture in the, uh, the weeks to come to solidify this and try to make sure if there's any questions or, but I was wondering this, if I, hopefully we can get all those answered so that we can have absolute confidence that we, so we do not have to be afraid of death. At times, there's nothing wrong with a Christian being apprehensive of death. That might even be normal. But there's a difference between apprehensive and being afraid. But there are some Christians who are afraid. Sometimes those Christians are afraid because they may not be Christians. Sometimes they are afraid because they don't know what the Word of God says. Sometimes they may be afraid because they uh, put their confidence in what other things have said and not just what the Word of God says. There can be a lot of reasons for that. We want to try to get rid of that so our, our faith can be strong. But this is not an attempt to brainwash anybody. It's for us to be deeply rooted in what the Word of God says so that we will understand, so we can have confidence, and we will not have to be afraid. And we'll be able to talk to those who may be in fear, and we can let them know how they cannot be afraid either because we do understand both life and death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, for the truth that is revealed in your word. We thank you, Father, for the understanding that we are both body and soul, so that, Father, when we see person after person after person die and pass away, we do not have to be overwhelmed with sorrow because life has ceased to exist. Because, Father, we understand from your word, from the teaching of your word, that for those who believe, Life continues, even though the body is dead, that you sustain the soul. Father, we are so grateful for that. I pray that the truths of the word of God, that they would worm their way deep into our hearts and our minds. That, Father, that we may be strengthened and we may be encouraged. That we can stand strong. That in whatever troubles we face in the future, no matter what temptations come along with those troubles, we will stand firm, and our hearts will not be troubled. Thank you, Father, for the truth that we can know these things are so. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned last week, as we deal with these things, and every week, for several weeks, we'll be talking about death. If you have questions, doubts, things that pop up in your mind, as I mentioned last time, that Email, text, phone, everything. It's all in the bulletin. You can contact me or Tim. Meet with you whenever you want, wherever you want, as often as you want. Because I want, I do want you to have the same assurances that I have. And it's not because I want to transfer to you my confidence. It has nothing to do with me. I want you to have the confidence that I have in this. And that we can know what this says. It's to the test of time. And we can be sure.